0: Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio with me, we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Kristen McDermott, who is a family practice resident who is rotating through the Atlanta Healing Center, and she's going to share some of her ideas about uh, primary care medicine and the opioid crisis. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Dr. Blank. And we also have David Donaldson, who's the CEO and Clinical Director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Welcome, David.
1: Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
0: This topic, I think, is a very important one because in the news, there's been a lot of suggestions about having primary care really being the primary treatment for the opioid crisis. But before we get there, uh, because I think it is a really important topic, and there's pros and cons on both sides of that, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is uh, Krista
2: McDermott, and I'm a family medicine resident at Gwinnett Medical Center. I received my medical training at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine And with that training, I also had training in osteopathic medicine where we not only just treat with medications, but also we learn a manipulative approach to treating pain in addition. Um, I'm a second-year resident, and I will say we definitely get a lot of exposure now, especially with everything in the news to the opioid crisis, and it's definitely become part of our training.
0: So tell us a little bit about... Uh, being a doctor of osteopathic medicine. I'm not sure that everybody in our listening audience is familiar with what a a DO, which is your um, uh, official uh, initials after your name as opposed to MD. Uh, What's the difference? What's the same? And uh, how has that impacted you in terms of your approach to the patients? So.
2: There's two types of medical physicians in the U.S. There's DOs and MDs. And it's very similar training. We learn to treat kind of pneumonia the same, everything else the same. We're licensed in all 50 states. But we do learn additional skills in what's known as, um, osteopathic manipulation. And essentially, it's one thing is part of is treating pain, treating structural problems, um, with manipulation, but also treating the whole body approach. So we don't incorporate just the treatment of you have x so let me give you y uh-huh. um it's kind of looking at the whole person the whole body and if that includes manipulation incorporate manipulation for those problems and it's not just for pain um, we learn a lot of techniques for um a sinus congex- uh, congestion where we might help relieve some of those symptoms and things like that too
1: so in the addiction world, um, the word manipulation is kind of looked down upon. <laughs> Family members <laughs> are regularly <laughs> manipulated by their addict to get their <laughs> needs met. I'm assuming you, when you use it's the word more manipulation, of a physical
2: <laughs> manipulation, I should say, instead of emotional manipulation. But um, I guess it'd be more of a hands-on approach,
1: like massage or
2: like massage and like chiropractic. It's kind of a combination of the two, I guess, if you had to draw a
0: comparison. So you're actually, if someone comes in and they have a complaint, let's say, of low back pain, which I think is one of the most common complaints <laughs> for patients coming in to see a primary care doctor. So let's say I have low back pain, more on my right side than my left, and it doesn't go down my legs uh, or into my buttocks. It's just in my back. How might you address that differently than... Um, someone else who does not have a osteopathic background so
2: first off i would rule out you know the scary
0: thing so not going down the leg incorporating making sure
2: it's not a disc herniation or something more serious and then um we do what's known as a structural exam so we would look at the spine we would look at the surrounding muscles we'd feel for uh, tissue texture changes as well as um looking at the bones and seeing if one side of your spine might be sticking out more than the Mm -hmm. other side, trying to find a true source of that pain. And a lot of times it's not even in the back. It's in the hips is something we usually find, too. And if there is some underlying structural abnormality, we would either kind of maybe do a massage of the muscles or Mm -hmm. do different techniques. Some are called, like, muscle energy, where we move the body in such a way to help realign everything. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. that can help um, with the pain.
0: And then I understand that you might also instruct me in ways in which I might stretch or um, some other techniques, maybe ice or heat, that I might do for myself at home. Definitely,
2: it definitely um, I'd say it's similar to in that sense to physical therapy. So mm-hmm. we would teach home techniques. We would definitely teach stretching. and as far as you know the rest, uh, relaxation, elevation, ice, heat. Um, depending on what's the underlying problem. And a lot of times it's not just a one treatment thing. We'd have you come back for multiple treatments um, and go from there.
0: So your first response wouldn't be to just reach for your prescription pad and to go ahead and write me a prescription for my favorite opioid. Um and uh, you, you would do maybe a bit more investigation and look at some alternative ways um, to treat.
2: Definitely. And I think our training does look at alternative ways, not just in the osteopathic world, but also incorporating physical therapy, incorporating possibly injections, like if there's knee pain, a knee injection, mm-hmm. things like that nature, just to kind of not reach specifically for medicines, was a lot of the time don't treat the underlying problem. It just kind of is a Band-Aid on top of
0: what's going on. So I think that's a very important distinction, and I think it's one of the things that is missing if, if we were to look at mainstream medical practice is there's not a lot of introduction. I know in my, in my training uh, in medical school and in residency, they would say, um, refer the person to a physical therapist, but honestly, I never went to a physical therapist's office until I myself was referred there uh, by my doctor. I had no idea what they might do, what kinds of things I might be able to suggest to the patient. We didn't learn those kinds of techniques, and uh, we didn't learn other ways of evaluating the person's pain that I think you have um, knowledge of and access to that would provide one more layer of protection against someone having an issue related to uh, possibly de- developing a, a dependence on opioids. I agree. And another thing at our clinic is we don't prescribe opioids,
2: so we have to look at those other approaches. Interesting. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the environment that's going on right now. We also, at our residency, we were starting a sports medicine fellowship soon, Interesting. So that's where we also look into kind of those other techniques, especially in the sports medicine world, of incorporating different physical therapy mm-hmm. moves.
0: It's really interesting. I was reading an article last evening uh, looking at the length of time a person is on opioids and whether or not that may predict someone that is going to go on and be on the medications for long term. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that it seemed to indicate, and the the authors themselves of this study were very clear that there were lots of limitations because they were using insurance um, claims data and other kinds of uh, retrospective evaluation, uh, but looking at patients over a long period of time. And one of the things that was really clear is that folks that get introduced particularly early on in their life or are given large amounts of opioids or uh, long-term prescriptions are much more likely to get into trouble with them. And the idea that we in the past have at least been too quick to write. So the idea that in your clinic that Uh, which is at Gwinnett Medical Center. I believe it's the Mm -hmm. Strickland Clinic. The Strickland Family Medicine Center. We also have a new uh, Duluth Family and Sports Medicine Clinic. Nice. Oh, I was not aware of the Duluth one. So thank you for pointing that out. I think that's really uh, interesting and really uh, speaks to being on the cutting edge that your, um, your residency training program is that, They've taken opioids off the table as an option for uh, those of you who are working in that uh, particular space. And so you really do have to look at making sure that you've got a good diagnosis and making sure that you're instituting an appropriate treatment plan. Mm -hmm.
1: So even at the sports medicine clinic, opiates are, are off the table?
2: We, uh, yes. So if we think someone needs opioid therapy, we would usually pres- um, refer them to a pain specialist. So it's not that we totally shy away from opioids, but we definitely have to think this problem really needs this and they need a specialist.
1: And the to person that's this. coming to that clinic, um, they're wanting some solution other than opiates. Yes. I would imagine up front coming there, if they're choosing to come there to a sports clinic rather than to a pain doctor.
2: Yeah. Our patient population is definitely well aware of our policy. So I think that's the
0: expectation. That that's um that's That's point. really
1: good to hear. It is. So many opiate addicts that we've seen over the years have gotten there because of a sports injury. Yes. And pushing through it and just manning up and being able to just take the pain and, and having pills to help them do that. So... So having a place where they can get some help for the physical ailments without having to deal with opiates is good.
0: A very good thing. And I think the other um, piece of that is when we look at our patients' histories. And we, ha- we see a skewed population in our uh, program. Certainly we see folks that, for the most part, If they haven't thought they have the disease of addiction, somebody around them has thought they do. So given that, they're um, often already identified as having a problem with drugs or alcohol or addictive behaviors. As we're doing their long-term history and ask them, when was your first exposure? To alcohol or to marijuana, nicotine, opioids, is very interesting, as David just mentioned. They'll either say, I had a sports injury in junior high or in high school, or I had dental work done. And that may not be the day that they took that first dose that they are often running and are a full blown uh, person demonstrating the disease of addiction although that does happen, but we often see that is the first time they experience that light, lightning bolt in their brain that says, I really like how this makes me feel, and may start the ball rolling. So it's often with these sports injuries and um, dental procedures that we see first introduction. I think with the times
2: being what they are today, hopefully that will change in the future. I think physicians are much more aware. I know in our training, we're much more aware of that Mm -hmm. now. Um, So hopefully we'll see a difference in that 20 years from now going down the road that that doesn't happen. And I know a lot of times um, there's new evidence, especially I was reading the New England Journal of Medicine, that um, if you start before 21, any of those medications, it really does cause a lot of changes in those dopamine surges and kind of remodeling the brain. So you really do have to be careful, especially in the pediatric population, going straight
0: for the opioids, or straight for any addictive medicine, for that matter. Correct. And I think that is uh, a lot of the information shows us that most people have been uh, identified some addictive behavior before the age of 21, and that it's pretty unusual again, not impossible, but for someone to uh, demonstrate uh, problems with addiction after the age of 25. It can happen, and we do occasionally see that, but Most of the time, people have had some trouble early on. You mentioned something that, again, I find very interesting, which is the changes in training. Now, back in my day, we didn't learn anything about this. So when we come back, we're going to talk about what are these new changes in training. So please stay
3: tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects,
4: Join us for the first annual Walk a Mile in Her Shoes on Saturday, September 22nd at Historic Fourth Ward Park. For more information, go to atlantawalkamileinhershoes.everydayhero.do. Are you man enough?
3: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, we have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, but we also have our special guest, Dr. Kristen McDermott, who is a family practice resident at Gwinnett Medical Center. She um, rotates through all sorts of... uh, training opportunities, including spending a month with us at the Atlanta Healing Center, and we've been very grateful to have her with us, and we have learned a lot from you, so thank you for being here. Thank you. So, speaking of changes in training, now, back in my olden days, but you know, before electricity was invented, uh, one of the things that was pretty striking is we didn't get training in pain management at all. There was... Little to know other than if you had a patient who had pain, someone would say, give him some of this. But the idea that there was going to need to be some rigorous understanding of the mechanisms of pain and alternative medications, that was not there. Also, we didn't really learn about the disease of addiction. And we didn't learn about the risks of some of the medications until much later. Even in my residency, that was rarely mentioned. And my first residency was in addiction or in psychiatry, not addiction medicine. So there have been a lot of changes. Some of them have been um, made uh, uh, requirements uh, by the American Board of Medical Specialties. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also some state and federal changes, but Gwinnett Medical Center has made their changes uh, as well, in ter- including having outpatient a pretty much opioid-free zone. Um, what other kinds of changes have you seen, uh, have you noticed? Well, part of our training now, and this is of the
2: federal changes, but we do have to um, be a part of the PDMP. So we... Definitely have to research our patients, see if there's any abuse potential, Um, screening patients for um, possible abuse at Mm -hmm. each visit. It doesn't just end with asking, do you smoke or do you drink, but just making sure we leave a non-judgmental area in Mm -hmm. our office that we can discuss that. And the biggest thing I've seen, and I don't know if this was the case in family medicine residencies more than 20 years ago, but we also have a behavioral health specialist who works with us. And part of the reason why I'm here is to get more training in behavioral health medicine as well as addiction medicine and just seeing what resources are available within the community. Another rotation we also had is we've attended AA meetings. We've gone to different resource centers um, around the area and had different resources come talk to us at our residency program just to see what we can do in our office and then what also where we can send our patients in the right direction. A lot of times we can't expect the primary care physician to treat the patient specifically right. but knowing what's available for the patient, because a lot of times we are the first mm-hmm.
0: person they come to. So absolutely. And it, and you're the the person that they've most likely had the longest relationship with and many times you may be the doctor for that person's family, so they have great confidence in you and an ongoing relationship built on trust, so if they are struggling, if they were having some questions or problems, you're right, you're the one who's most likely to have the opportunity to have that discussion with them. So... You um, also mentioned the PDMP, which I think is a really good resource. The Prescription Drug Monitoring Program is what that stands for. And as of July 1st, here in the state of Georgia, any prescriber or any dispenser is required to um, check the PDMP if that patient is being given an opioid or a pain medication and or a benzodiazepine to make sure that we are not contributing to any kind of um, potential lethal overdose consequence, and also to make sure that we're aware if this person is also getting prescriptions from another source or seems to be the term we often use is doctor shopping, where the person is seeing multiple physicians or um extenders for the same problem and getting prescribed so this is a really important change and it's one that um i know has been introduced uh, for all of you takes a little more time often reveals some interesting things though it's a great tool though because a lot of times i mean before it was
2: based off a judgment call right and um you know sometimes it's tricky it's hard to tell and you don't want to deny a person
0: treatment sure but you also don't want to contribute to a problem, you know, the first do no harm, so. Absolutely. As we say in addiction medicine, you trust, but then you verify. And we, um, we trust the person. We don't always trust the disease of addiction. And it is very difficult to tell. The idea that most people have about what someone with addiction looks like, that you could identify them, they're the homeless person on the street, they're the um, person who is um, eating at the soup kitchen that's not what most people with addiction look like. Although those folks may have addiction as well, the most people you can't tell by just looking at the outside of them or how they present whether or not they have the disease of addiction. So it's really important to trust and to have that level of respect for the person but also to verify whether or not there might be a problem there that they haven't identified to you. Definitely.
1: And so you... If I heard you correctly, y'all have a a safe space for – to be able to sit down and have that conversation with somebody, say, if you were to notice a lot of prescriptions on the PDMP or if you were to have a pretty strong sense that this is a conversation someone needs to have, there's – you guys do that, or are you calling the behavioral health person to come in and do that?
2: So it's patient-by-patient it's patient basis. Um, we definitely want to create a safe, open space to at least get the conversation started. And with the understanding that this is something that's not going to be done in probably a 15- or 20-minute visit. But luckily, in family practice, we do have continuity on our side. Um, We see the patients typically on a regular basis, and Mm -hmm. a lot of times we do see the patients' families. So a lot of it can be incorporating with the patient's permission, their family, creating additional family meeting, um, seeing whether it's something that we can help with or if outside resources are needed.
1: What I think is another change that's really kind of cool is that y'all are able to bring up and talk about the subject without Mm -hmm. having the responsibility to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Because w- once upon a time, it was don't ask if you don't want to know and don't ask if you're not going to fix. And so the message that was given to a lot of people was these are subjects we're not going to talk about, which addiction loves because right. you know, <laughs> it can just hide back there. But you guys are, c- are creating a safe place to be able to open up the communication. And it seems like in the article that you were looking at earlier or talking about earlier, they mentioned that there's a certain number of times you have a conversation before it clicks.
2: I think it was around like seven times or Mm -hmm. something like that typically um and also I mean we can a lot of times treat the problem there's different programs out there there's always consultations especially if you're in the more rural setting um here in Atlanta we're lucky that everything's around but um I think being able to identify specifically what you can treat and what probably would be best somewhere else is important in primary care but the biggest thing is I think a lot of times and I was reading this article here that a lot of people with substance abuse they would bring it up with their primary care physicians and I think they didn't know what exactly to do or where to go and there's a lot of resources out there just online um technology's been an amazing help wonderful (laughs) where you can find if you If you don't feel comfortable treating the patient yourself, you can find a resource that's nearby. Mm -hmm. I was looking just this morning at the different uh, substance abuse clinics. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And all you have to do is just type in a website. We can go into that later, but um, a physician finder
0: to just Mm -hmm. see where those resources are. Mm which is um, not something that was available (laughs) in times back. Um, It it was much more um, complex, but then we didn't have the same level of um, urgency and the same level of lethality that we're seeing with people um, with the opioids. So I'd like to go back just for a minute to the idea of assessing a patient who has pain And uh, trying to determine what's the best course of treatment and how do you, uh, what's the process of getting to the place that I'm either going to write an opioid for that person or I'm going to refer them on to be um, evaluated and maybe a pain management doctor um, helping them. How, how do you um, look at the patient and what are the things that you might consider in trying to decide what's my best next course? Well, we can go back to the example of the low back pain. Mm-hmm. First things first, you want to rule
2: out anything that could kill someone or hurt Absolutely. someone or, you know, does this person need to go to the ER? and be evaluated immediately. So that's that's usually our first step. And when we ask those kind of crazy questions, that's what we're trying to rule out. Um, but the next step usually is more of a conservative approach, um, especially with the low back pain. Most of the time, low back pain can take about six, seven weeks to resolve. And sometimes you don't find an underlying etiology to that problem. Um, but definitely the more conservative anti-inflammatories if appropriate um the rest of relaxation the ice the um compression heat and then i personally like physical therapy i think i've Mm -hmm. seen wonders with it um especially in the muscles if the underlying problem is more in the muscles or in the bones um and just trying those different approaches if those don't work a lot of times you want to just see what's wrong. Why is this pain happening? See if it's something that's curable.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, especially in a younger population, if a surgery can help or not, or any other sort of a treatment modality. But if after exhausting all those things, mm-hmm. you can't find a treatment, pain is uncontrolled, we don't want our patients to be suffering, right. um, we would try to... Kind of escalate the pain medicines before we get to the opioids. But eventually, if opioids are needed, that is part of Mm -hmm. our treatment plan, and we're not going to let a person suffer just because this crisis is going on. But um, with the monitoring parameters that are happening now, a lot of times pain management. We like to send them there.
1: It used to be that the people were trained to use the pain pain scale, Mm -hmm. 1 through 10. And um, if a patient came in and they said they had pain at a level higher than four, you had to treat them, and so it became just the quick response to write a script and and write a referral to pain management and send them on their way. But the patients quickly learned: I have to have more than a, if I say more than a four, I'm going to get some service, <laughs> and if I say less than four, I'm going to get <laughs> <laughs> you know pat on the back.
2: Um, we definitely don't get trained that way anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a very good I think thing. it's definitely much more of a stepwise approach now and a lot of times patients that's maybe they learned from that model previously and that's why they think I need to go straight to the opioids. But a lot of them I found out they've tried the other treatment modalities
0: and were happy and their pain improved and it was was great it was great (laughs) we're going to take a break when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the other improvements that we see in primary care so thanks for listening
3: the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp what should be the course of treatment who is the best person to render treatment and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
4: You know, you really can't appreciate what someone has gone through until you walk a mile in their shoes. That is why we are bringing the first annual Walk a Mile in Her Shoes to Atlanta. We are literally asking men to walk a mile in high heel shoes to express empathy for women who have been victims of sexual assault. Are you man enough? If so, join us Saturday, September 22nd at Historic Fourth Ward Park. For more information, go to Atlanta Walk A Mile in Do.
5: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol.
0: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. This is America's Web Radio, and I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today in studio I have... With me, David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and our special guest from the Gwinnett Medical Center Family Practice Residency, Dr. Kristen McDormitt, who is a um, second-year resident out of a three-year program, is that correct? That is, thank you. And uh, she's been a delight um, to have in our practice this month, and we've certainly enjoyed um, spending time with her. Back to the idea, uh, and David, you mentioned this a moment ago. Um, let's talk about the pain scale because, again, when the Joint Commission on Hospital Accreditation made pain the fifth vital sign, there was this huge shift that we began to see in terms of the readiness of doctors and other prescribers to give opioids and the obligation that was felt on the part of hospitals and um, healthcare professionals to immediately address and significantly address a pain issue. Um, we, we kind of got a bad taste in our mouth for the pain scale. but. Do you all still use the pain scale? Is, is that helpful to you? We do. I and mean, We use
2: it at every visit, And but we use it kind of differently. Um, we use it maybe for treatment approaches as far as pain, but if it's an acute situation, we use it to uh, determine the severity of what's going on. So say someone comes in with a 9 out of 10 pain and this is completely new for them, I need to see what's going on. Is this serious? Do I need to send them to the emergency room? Um As I was saying in the example earlier, someone comes in with nine out of 10 abdominal pain, is something wrong with their gallbladder, is something going on that needs immediate attention? Mm
1: -hmm. Appendicitis.
2: Appendicitis (laughs) or something to that degree before I just go straight to pain management. Um, With the more chronic um, pain scale, we still look at it to Uh see how treatment goes, but um, just like as I said before, it's
0: more of the stepwise approach with opioids kind of being that final step. And so it's used as a tool to help you evaluate not only uh, the person's current condition, but have they improved? Um, Are things getting better? Are they responding to the treatment plan or do we need to take another approach? So rather than it's cut and dry, you're four or greater, here's your your prescription for opioids, we'll see you later. Um, I'm really glad to hear that because I think that's where a lot of doctors and patients have found themselves part of this opioid epidemic. And I
2: definitely think there's a lot more treatment modalities out there now. We were kind of discussing where if you have a compressed nerve Maybe we would do the opioid prescription, but that's maybe until we can get you to the physiatrist
0: who can do an epidural injection or something to that degree. And there are things, again, in your tool bag that aren't in mine, uh, um, uh, giving people trigger point injections, giving people um, some other... uh, interventions mm-hmm. that are um, available because of your training and your background that I think make it ideal, particularly with uh, being in primary care where you are probably going to be the first person unless they've had a an accident or an injury that requires them to immediately go to the ER. You're probably the first person they're going to come to with their complaint. And so for you to have all of these additional ways in which you can address and evaluate the pain, I think that's, um, that's really an, uh, an awesome way to, um, to look at the total care of the patient. So um, that being said, what are some of the pressures that you have in, in primary care and in family practice that have complicated your ability to potentially take care of some of these patients that – May have an expectation. I'm going to get a, a prescription for an opioid, or I'm um, I'm not willing to do physical therapy, other kinds of things. I think a lot of it is retraining, discussing the risks. Mm-hmm. A lot of times,
2: if people are well informed and there's no underlying addiction problem right now, then if you explain the risks in detail to them, a lot mm-hmm. of people will understand and. Um, take ownership of their health and realize, okay, these are the steps I need to take. And if there is improvement in the future, they won't jump straight to the opioids or straight to other um, addictive medicines. Um, So it's a lot of conversation and just talking to the patient, I'd say.
0: With um, a lot of things rolling downhill, as we say and following in the lap of primary care and family practice, things that in the past used to be managed by um, other specialists. And I, I think I've spoken on this show before about uh, back in the day, the treatment for depression or bipolar disease was so complicated, so complicated and potentially lethal that very often those folks were immediately referred to a psychiatrist. And then we got medications like the SSRIs, like Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft, and some of these medications that now um, are not lethal. They have a low side effect profile. Most people tolerate them pretty well. And so the idea is, well, let's make Family practice do this and let's have family practice uh, be the ones to institute the treatment of diabetes and and the heart disease and the very complex uh, um, kinds of problems that in the past were much more the specialist focused on that how does that th- just to be trained in all of those areas <laughs> and to be Um, an expert in all of these areas, I think is so hard. Plus, you've got some real time limits. It's definitely difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: I definitely think there's much more of an emphasis than there used to be, at least in the addiction aspect. Um, But I will say knowing your limitations is the most important step. Um, There's definitely treatments that can be done in the outpatient setting. I know that Suboxone, which used Mm -hmm. frequently in the Atlanta um, Healing Center, Primary care physicians, they have to go through a course, but they can give that. But I think the most important thing is knowing who, how to prescribe it, going through the appropriate training, knowing what you're doing, looking for the warning signs, and also knowing what should be referred. Mm -hmm. So just kind of not overwhelm the psychiatrist or overwhelm the addiction specialist, but knowing... You know what? We can do this in the office. I feel comfortable doing this. If you've had the, or finding another physician, another primary care physician in the area, who can do um, suboxone, and then knowing, you know what? I don't think so. I think this for your case. Say there's an underlying mental disorder, or if there's other uh, co-addictions such as alcohol or benzodiazepines, mm-hmm. um, knowing who might need more specialized treatment. And I think that's the most important step to know is what what is what can I appropriately do, and what should be referred.
0: I think that's where the um, American Society of Addiction Medicine their criteria is very helpful in terms of helping a a physician or other healthcare provider who's trying to determine, is this a, a person that I can treat safely in my office, is this a person that I can treat safely in my office with some help from a therapist in the community or some 12-step recovery groups, or is this somebody that needs to be referred for a higher level of care? And uh, the nice thing about the dimensions of ASAM is the idea that we're not just looking at, do you have the disease of addiction or not? Mm -hmm. Uh, We're looking at, are you safe? Because, um, as you mentioned, if they've got other addictions, if they're addicted to benzodiazepines or alcohol, they may not be safe at all to be treated as an outpatient, at least initially for the detox. So understanding how to evaluate the patients and looking at all of the uh, possible addictions, but then also understanding who might need to actually be inpatient for that detox, um, looking at the um, the psychiatric uh, component and the medical component. If you've got a pregnant woman, then... You know, this completely changes definitely <laughs> what, what we're doing in terms of what level of care is appropriate and what types of medications and what settings are appropriate.
2: And I think in any setting, and this isn't just tied to addiction, but if there is, I think knowing what other physicians in the area and being mm-hmm. able to call an addiction specialist and... Um, saying, hey, with this patient, do you think this person really needs to go to you or mm-hmm. what can I do in my office? And I've done that for not just addiction, but for other um, mm-hmm. comorbidities or other diseases too. So just knowing outreach in the community. Um, I think the best patient care is when physicians talk to other
0: physicians. Absolutely. <laughs> so Absolutely. And when we continue with uh, with the dimensions of ASAM and look at what's this person's relapse risk? Now, if this is the first time that drugs or alcohol or behavior has been identified as a problem, or this is their 16th time that they've reached a crisis, uh, you know, those are very different. Um, what's their risk of relapse? And it may be very high for some person and, and some not for somebody else. Um, what's their recovery um, environment? Are they living in a... A suitable place where they have good support and family members who are going to be actively involved, or are they homeless or living in a situation that's not going to be safe? And what's or even
1: been? more difficult, the question of <laughs> are they living in an environment where there's going to be people who are still actively drinking and yes. unwilling to look at their own drinking? Um, because we know that their their relapse rate is going to be higher and their potential need to live somewhere else is going to be
0: mm-hmm.
1: greater. And then
0: mm. what's the motivation? How motivated is this person to be able to um, show up at your office, take their medication as directed, keep all of their appointments, do all of the other additional things that they need? Because, to get sober as an outpatient, that's a lot of work. And most of Definitely. the burden of that falls on the individual themselves to make all these things happen.
2: Um, the American Academy of Family Physicians has an article on dealing with substance abuse. And one of their main points is making sure, with the patient's permission, of course, but getting family involvement is Absolutely. key. Absolutely. Um, and luckily, in our situation with that continuity, mm-hmm. before the issues ever addressed, we tend to know the family dynamic already. A lot of times we ask family history for anything um, and just what the family dynamic is, who do you live with, exposures. And with that history, we can kind of get a sense of the Mm -hmm. support network. And one thing I have learned um, in the clinic especially is making sure to watch out for other problems that can happen with addiction as far as uh, things to screen. And addiction, and as far as also checking the family dynamic, making sure not to screen for domestic abuse and yes, things of that nature. Because a lot of times that can happen in those situations.
0: And again, what a person looks like, where they live, what kind of car they drive, does not necessarily tell you whether they're safe in their home and whether or not they may be a victim of domestic violence. So being able to screen for all these things, very important. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at treating addiction in primary care. Please stay tuned.
3: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
4: Are you man enough to take a stand against sexual assault? If so, join us for the first annual Walk a Mile in Her Shoes on Saturday, September 22nd at the historic 4th Ward Park. For more information, go to atlanta atlantawalkamileinhershoes.everydayhero.do
5: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
3: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me our special guest from the Gwinnett Medical Center Family Practice Residency, Dr. Kristen McDermott. And she is um, a second-year resident, got one more year to go, uh, counting the days, I'm sure. Definitely. <laughs> um, It's a tough uh, residency because you're not just working in outpatient and you're not just doing family practice per se, but you have to rotate through all kinds of um, specialties and subspecialties and you're on call at night and you have to uh, work in the emergency room and do all kinds of things. So It is a rigorous um, residency, and we've been very grateful to have you with us this month. So thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed being with you guys this month. And we have David Donaldson, who is our clinical director and CEO and um, guru for everyone, especially families. And this is, um, I think, um, an important piece that we talked about in the break about how do we – How do we work together to um, take the best care of the patient? And one of the things that you brought up, which I think was very interesting, was that risk of relapse. So if someone's been identified as having the disease of addiction and the treatment is being managed and coordinated, hopefully, between um, all parties, um, and then we have somebody who has to have a procedure. Definitely.
2: I think knowing that addiction model, knowing that this is a disease and not a choice, um, as a primary care physician, once they stop seeing you, Mm -hmm. eventually we need to know what are the risks and what's the possibilities of relapse. And a lot of times, as we were discussing during the break, that's during procedures, especially surgical procedures. And knowing maybe we should contact you again and have one more meeting before that procedure, how we should approach that procedure as a primary care physician. What can we tell our patients? How should we treat our patients? Is pain, because a lot of times there is pain
0: after the procedure.
2: So how should we treat them? Should we do a shorter course, a lower dose, or an alternate medicine altogether? And I think keeping, in family practice, we like to call the specialists at times, and I think keeping that bond with the community Mm -hmm. is helpful for patient care.
0: One of the things that we have learned from primary care is that we need to stop thinking about addiction as a um, episode of care. You've gone into treatment, and now everything's all good. That we need to adopt more of the chronic illness model for the treatment of addiction and that sometimes uh, the disease is very well managed and you don't really need to be seeing your addiction professionals in your life. The primary care doctor is certainly going to be following up and making sure that their liver functions have gone back to normal after using, that their bone marrow looks back to normal. Uh, we do a lot of work checking hormones to make sure that because of the effect of drugs and alcohol, particularly on the pituitary gland, that their organ systems, like their thyroid or their adrenal glands, their testes or their ovaries, that that's all okay. Um, and and we know that our primary care doctor can follow up on those things and, and make sure that the person is stable and um, manage their medication for depression, all of those kinds of things. Um, but like other chronic illnesses, there are going to be times when the disease of addiction flares. And you're right. Uh, I think our experience, David, <laughs> is that uh, many times these um, relapses occur either after a period of very acute and severe stress and or because they've been exposed, Uh, through having an illness or an injury or requiring a procedure, that they get back into having access to um, drugs that light up their brain. Definitely.
2: And it's definitely a disease. I mean, first and foremost, it's definitely a disease. And you have to treat it as such, just like Mm -hmm. hypothyroidism or any other disease. And I believe the most important thing we can learn in primary care is to recognize those risk factors as we discussed but and keeping that open communication but also just we see the patients usually at least every six months right especially as they get older you know you have chronic medicines and you have to come for your four month or six month checkup to keep those things going so we tend to know how the dynamic is going and a lot of times we will be that cancer diagnosis or anything Mm -hmm. like that so knowing with that history of addiction Just saying, hey, you know, I know this was an issue in the past. Do you have the resources to help you kind of get through this? Do you have family support? Is this going to be a problem? Do we need to get Mm -hmm. help through the psychiatrist again? Do you think we can manage this here? And I think the most important thing you can do in primary care is making a non-judgmental area. Where the patients can discuss those things with you and have a safe space. And all patients should, or all people should have a physician that they feel like they can have those intimate conversations with
0: and that idea that you're going to follow up when you notice that they're they or their family are in crisis and you're going to check in and say how you doing um Mm -hmm. are you getting to your meetings have you um have you been consistent with talking to your sponsor uh, knowing to and remembering to ask those questions if a family member got hospitalized or there was a, um, a situation within the family that caused stress or if they themselves need to have a procedure. I think this is so scary uh, <laughs> because a lot of times people know very well, well, I can't drink alcohol. Alcohol is my big problem. I'm never drinking again. I'm going to my meetings. I'm all worried about alcohol, but they don't recognize that alcohol isn't their problem, that their brain is their problem. And what they really need to be aware of is that if they go in and they take pain medicine or they're exposed to anesthesia or they have to take muscle relaxants or something for sleep, these things can light up their brain just like alcohol and can create for them the craving, either to now find a new drug that they love or to be reminded of how much they loved their old dopamine-releaser of choice. So it's really important that they understand that this is a brain disease and that your problem isn't alcohol or tobacco or um, gambling. Your problem is your brain. And whenever you are in stress or whenever you're exposed to addictive substances, Even with doctor's orders, it is very, very vitally important that we touch base, that you check in with them, and that they be um, encouraged to be honest about are they having cravings.
2: Definitely, and keeping that in mind, um, physicians should be aware of that history as far as the Mm -hmm. addiction because it is a disease, and it would change my prescribing practices, not just for opioids, but other medicines that do have the addictive potential
0: as well. Absolutely. It's not that we want people to be in pain, as you've said many times, no. But there are things that that you can do as a primary care doctor, uh, smaller uh, prescriptions, uh, checking in more frequently, having them taken on a regular scheduled basis as opposed to the usual prescription that says one to two every four to six hours is needed for pain. That is just a recipe (laughs) for someone with a disease of addiction for their brain to just light up all over and then to be in their happy place. So a scheduled time to take the medicine and someone else managing it. Yeah, and I think addiction doesn't just end with the
2: addict as well, but we do see their family members. Correct. Checking in with the family members as well and saying hey, you know, how's so and so doing? Mm -hmm. Or how are you doing? If someone's dealing with addiction and I'm seeing their wife or their husband, I want to just say, how are you? Because a lot of times the caregiver burden is difficult as well. Oh,
4: it's very difficult.
1: Well, and I I think in particular the point that you just brought up, that sometimes a patient has to be on a medication that is going to light up the addiction center, and so they cannot manage their own medication. And being able to give that education to a family member and let the family member understand that, This is a medicine that once they start taking it, they're going to want to take it more than I'm prescribing. So you have to take care of it and you have to dispense it so that we don't have this turn into a relapse. That's an awkward, difficult conversation (laughs) to have. And there are a lot of spouses who are like, yes, yes, I know I got this just to get out of the office. And so being able to help them with that angst.
2: Mm-hmm. Because there is a lot of medicines that we do prescribe, even at our clinic, that do have addictive potential. Sure. I think opioids just are kind of the mainstream media right now. But with someone with a disease of addiction, I mean, we discuss discussed cough syrup and all sorts of things. Correct. That I, if I know, you know, maybe you should take this instead of this, mm-hmm. this might not be good for you. So.
0: And knowing the family, and I, this is what I love about family practice, is that you might be treating the entire family. And if there is someone that is identified as having the disease of addiction, then that raises your awareness that I may need to watch the kids exactly. or the parents of this person because this is a genetically inherited disease. And so while not everybody who has a parent or a first-degree relative that has the disease of addiction is going to get it, it is a one-in-three chance if you've got one first-degree re- relative that has a disease. And that's part of the importance of our family history as well. If I know right. that you're both your parents
2: suffered from addiction, that's something that I need to be aware of too. Mm-hmm. And that might change my prescribing
0: practices as well. But And it is um, it takes a village. It takes a team. And often those communications um, between um, the specialist and the primary care doctor, the handoffs are so important. And uh, having seen several instances here very recently among some of our patients where um, the primary care doctor, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that the patient may not have wanted their primary care doctor to know their diagnosis, that there is this um, uh, gap in terms of good quality communication and care, and, uh, the person is then very vulnerable to relapse if their primary care doctor doesn't know about their diagnosis. So we want to thank you very much, uh, for being with us today, um, Dr. McDermott, and we're invite you back anytime. And thank, thank you. you, David. And thank you all for listening. And we'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction.
3: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: nine eight six
3: two you're listening to America's web radio on the americas broadcast network.com thank you for listening you're listening to America's web radio on the America